So tonight we get the opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and right at the beginning, I'm going to just mention that I, I will hopefully not do this, but just in case I do, it's not intentional, uh, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we want to be careful not to refer to the Holy Spirit as it, which hopefully I will not do. It's, it's kind of tempting at times to do, but the Holy Spirit is a person, is a person of the Godhead. And so we just want to make sure we ask the questions, who is the Holy Spirit rather than what is the Holy Spirit to start off, to just try to understand this uh, and understanding his personhood. In some ways, I feel like the Holy Spirit for most of us should be the uh, subject matter that we know the most about. We talk about angels, we talk about demons and the Holy Spirit, and you think, oh, I know the Holy Spirit, right? We should, we should know the most about the Holy Spirit, but in some ways, this is one of the, the more complex and confounding topics just because of the nature of who God is uh, and his, um, his divinity. So we're going to, uh, to survey through a little bit to start about, out, about the Trinity, talking about the Trinity and under, trying to understand why the Trinity is important. Um, I am borrowing lots of uh, quotations and citations and even some of my organizational material from uh, Wayne Grudem and Millard Erickson, as I've mentioned in the past. And so if you read through some of those systematic theologies, you might see um, some resemblance. And so I'm just giving credit where credit's due because uh, this is not all like me, right? So the first thing we're going to talk about is the, the triunity of God and why it's important. So I have a few statements I'm going to write on the board that we as evangelical Christians hold to. And so the first one is that there is one God. Nobody here should disagree with that statement, hopefully. There is one, one God. There is also another statement that we see uh, true in scripture, which is, if I could spell properly, three persons in the Bible are described as God. They are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, or formerly known often as God the Holy Ghost, but we kind of don't use that language anymore because of its connotations in our culture. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, God the Holy Spirit. And we'll go through some passages in a moment that kind of describe these, but this kind of gives our outlining. And then there's one more statement, which is that these three persons are distinct, distinct from each other. That is to say, when you come to God the Father, God the Father is not, in a sense, God the Son, and God the Son is not, in a sense, God the Holy Spirit, yet they are one God. There is one God. And so these are the statements that we believe. If you look at the, the doctrine of the Trinity, this is unique to Christianity. Every other uh, world religion or even monotheistic religions, there is one God religions like Judaism, like Islam, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, those kind of religions, they all do away with the triunity of God in some way, shape, or another. And we'll look at that in a little bit in a moment as well. But these are all true statements from Scripture. There's one God presented to us in Scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. You can look that one up. 
hopefully you should know it. It goes, there is one God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God then with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? So the Lord our God is one. Yet throughout scripture, and we'll see this as well, the three persons are described as God. And then these three persons are distinct from each other. So what happens is if you take away one of these at any point, you get heresy, which have popped up over the centuries. So if you take away this one, take away there is one God, you're left with multiple gods. So you could be left with something called tritheism, or if you believe in more, polytheism, right? So that would be not sensible with the, what the Bible says, but that's what some religions have done. If you take away, leave this statement, and then you take away the three persons that are described as God, then what you get is Arianism, is um, essentially saying they're not all God. Uh, they're distinct from each other. There's one God, and so God the Son, God the Holy Spirit must not be actually God. So Arianism would be one variant of that kind of heresy, where if you take away that. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning he is the first created being. He's not eternally coexistent with God. And so they fall into, into that heretical camp. So we can't do away with that one either. Same with the, the Holy Spirit um, being created. Some, some people believe that, and that's obviously not true, but that's a, a problem, a heresy. And then there is a final one. If we take away that the three persons are distinct from each other, then we fall into modalism or Sabellianism. These are just helpful uh, terms, I guess modalism, which basically would say, if we take away that they're distinct from each other, then essentially it's saying, I'm one person, you view me from this side, you view me from this side, you view me from the back side. I'm not actually distinct. It's just three different sides of me. It's kind of three different modes that are operating. So I want to just ask a question to you. So that's what happens if we do that. And so we obviously don't want to do that. What are some analogies that you have heard to describe the Trinity over the years? The egg. Okay. So can you describe the egg analogy for me? Like the, the shell and then you have like the whites and the yolk. They're all like, they all are individual components of the egg, but they're all an egg. They're all part of an egg. Right. So which camp do you kind of feel like it would fit into? Because obviously, well, is that an adequate analogy? No. No. Okay. So the reason I'm pulling it out is because they they're not adequate analogies. So how is that analogy inadequate? How does it fail? Yeah, Dave? They're all different parts of the egg, but they don't make up the egg completely by themselves. Right. So if you have so yolk, yep. The yolk isn't described as an egg. Right. So they are... They are distinct from each other. None in and of themselves is fully, fully God, right? Or <laughs> it's egg, fully egg. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a heresy. <laughs> we worship eggs. <laughs> oh, man. No. Yeah. 
Okay, so what's a, that's probably the camp that most analogies fall into. What's her, what are some other analogies? Yeah, Derek? Water. water. So water can exist in three very different forms. Yes, you have liquid, you have yep. frozen, and you have steam. Good, yes. So those are the three different, yep. An apple. An apple. So an apple fits kind of the egg analogy, yep. So now water is probably actually a little bit more like modalism, because if you have water vapor, it's, it's still water. If you have ice, it's still water proper. It's still the same substance, right? But it can't be all three at once. So it's, it's one or the other. Kind of like uh, I could be a citizen of, well, that's kind of more modalism too. Uh, like I could be a citizen of Windsor, a, a resident of Windsor, a citizen of a Canada, and a human being or something. I don't know if that's, that's a terrible analogy. But anyways, the idea modalism uh, in that one. Okay, what's another analogy that you've heard? Dave? Um, oh, sorry. Just oh, Dave. Or, sorry, Dave first. Um, the weird one that I've heard of is a family unit. Okay. Like mother, father, and son. Okay. Interesting. A mother, father, and son. It's yeah. From so. too. Oh, really? Yeah. That he uses that as a kind of an analogy? Yeah. But he points it out, I'm sure, as not being sufficient. No, he points <laughs> out as the Trinity is the, the beginning point for the family unit? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I've heard between some people try to describe it as like the, the husband-wife kind of combination, which scripture doesn't give any precedent for. Like husband-wife relationship is like Christ and the church is an analogy often used. But um, I guess in reverse, it could kind of work as a, a template or something. But that's an interesting analogy. So it obviously falls short of describing because, well, my... Like, did you say husband, wife, son, daughter, child? Yeah, it's like or? all three of them make up a family. Okay. So the, none of them are the family by themselves still. So it still is. Except, there is not one God. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not one. One person doesn't make the family. Yeah. What was your going to be? Uh, clover leaf. Okay. I don't know how that <laughs> yeah, a clover leaf. Yeah. So. Well, unless it's a four-leaf clover, St. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick's, right? So, um, don't don't say anything about my drawing skills. I'm just gonna draw. I'm just gonna erase things. <laughs> okay, yes, a clover or a triangle, right? Yes. Some people have said like a triangle, like the three points of a triangle, right? But the three points of a triangle falls into the modalism camp again as well. And so analogies, like we could go on and on and on, and people have come up. Yep. As one flesh. Yeah, which I kind of, in one sense, get. I think it's probably a little un, unwise to use that analogy to describe the Trinity just because Scripture specifically uses that analogy to describe Jesus' relationship with the church. So if you think about Jesus' relationship with the church, thinking of the one flesh, you're like, there's a radical unity that we have with Jesus Christ that I would not want to start comparing to the unity that Jesus has with God the Father. Just because then it, all of a sudden, are we like a fourth part of the Godhead? Like where it could go? So just, yeah, it's, but it's, it's kind of unique. It's a unique relationship for sure, right? Um, being described as one flesh, which I totally get and don't get. Like that you're married to somebody and you're now one flesh with them, but you're still quite distinct, right? So, 
Um, yeah, so interesting. So all of these analogies fall short is the point. You kind of you figure that out. And as you figure, you're trying to explain God and explain the Trinity. A quote that I have heard uh, before that kind of sums it up. I don't even know where it's from, but it says, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind, referring to the Trinity, but try to deny it and you lose your soul. <laughs> it's kind of like you have to have it, but you just can't understand it completely. Um, and the, the reason I point all this out, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. And we want to remember that the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead, is fully God, yet distinct from God the Father, God the Son. Uh, we want to remember these things, but we need to remember them because it's very easy to slip into heretical beliefs without even realizing it to slip into ways of thinking that are comparing to things we know, analogies, or comparing to the way we've been taught to understand the Holy Spirit, which may or may not line up with Scripture. So some of you maybe grew up in more, uh, I don't know if it would be correct to call it, like churches with catechisms. I'm not sure what you would call that. It's not more liturgical necessarily, but like uh, my parents, my mom grew up in a CRC church that had catechisms. So they would go to catechism class and they would learn the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And maybe some of you have learned those. And I didn't grow up learning those, but as I've read them, I'm like, wow, they're like jam-packed with solid theology. And you kind of wonder, why is it such a big deal, some of the details in those creeds. But those creeds were developed not just because somebody was like, I'm going to go through scripture and try to highlight all these things that are important, but rather because people came up with heresies that started to get taught and they're like, that doesn't line up with scripture. So they made these creedal statements that very clearly refuted these positions. So for example, um, or more like an analogy, I guess, we have tax laws. I can, there's probably some people that are out there that would just love to write tax laws for the fun of it, but there's tax laws in large part because people scam the system and it gets bigger as more people get more creative and try different loopholes to scam the system and get out of paying taxes. So there's like tax law and all these rules. And if you talk to somebody that works in the CRA, they have been exposed to very, very many ways that you can jump through loopholes, right? So catechisms were kind of like the early church's way to say, these are the, the loopholes people are finding, and we need to just say, this is how you should understand, uh, this is how you should understand scripture, right? So that we understand properly. And I think those are actually very helpful. Uh, we don't want to get so tied to them that we forget why they're important. But if you have the opportunity to go through a, a catechism, it does systematically hit the important doctrines. And we actually... Um, I'm really kind of excited. Our children's ministry here at the church is doing something called North Star Catechism, which is like, I don't know how many statements there are, but they go through it with the kids each Sunday and they actually go through these statements that very, very clearly explain the truth of scripture in memorable uh, statements, question, answer kind of things. And it really is very helpful. So this is, this is important stuff for us to think about. It's important for us to have and important for us to study these things so that we understand where we go wrong on our understanding of the Holy Spirit and the nature of God. So a little bit more about the Trinity. We believe in three persons, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, equally God, yet distinct in their roles. So we believe the Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. 
the spirit is not the son or the father, etc. So like there's one being or essence, three persons is how we've uh, described it. And now we're going to go to scripture and see how we know that. And I'm going to avoid an update <laughs> on my computer. Okay, so we're going to go to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Many of you will know this passage, and uh, this passage is very, very uh, important in apologetics and defending the Christian faith. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we understand the word there, talking later in the passage, we understand it to be Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ in the beginning was the word. If you go to a Jehovah's Witness Bible, it'll say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Uh, And that's because they want to put the idea that Jesus is a God, but he's not equal with God. He's not God. He was in the beginning. He was the first created. So he's in the beginning, but he wasn't. Uh, to be actually God. That's how they kind of understand it. But we look at this and we say, first of all, not that we have time to go all into Greek grammar and stuff, but it doesn't even make sense to say the word was a God. Um, And so that's just grammatically not even proper. But for them to say, for us to say this, to read this, we say the word was with God and the word was God. Right there we have, how can the word be with God and yet the word be God? And that's, an example of how we understand just that that's one glimpse into the, the triune nature of God. Obviously the word Trinity doesn't show up or not obviously necessarily. If you didn't know the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, but it's definitely a, a biblical concept. So the word was with God and the word was God, the spirit. Uh, so then John 17 verse 24 In John 17, verse 24, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, which if you believe Jesus to be God is right there. There's some relationship within the Godhead. Jesus is praying. And Jesus in John 17, 24 says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So it speaks of this relationship, the glory that's been given to Jesus. It's essentially showing there are two persons of the Godhead here um, that are at, at work, right? Even the fact that he's praying to God makes that clear to us. Jesus is clearly separate from God the Father in a sense as he's addressing God the Father. 1 John 2 verse 1 speaks of Jesus as a great high priest before God, or as an advocate, rather. It says, First John 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, Jesus has a specific role. We're going to read more about the Holy Spirit's roles, uh, different roles in the Godhead. But one of the roles of Jesus is to be our advocate before God the Father. And so this idea that there is distinct roles in the Godhead. John 14, verse 26, speaks about the Holy Spirit. And it says, but the helper, that's one of the names for the Holy Spirit, but the helper, 
the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. This is Jesus speaking, right? Whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That gives us a little clue into some of the roles of the Holy Spirit, teaching you all things and bringing to remembrance all that I've said to you. But what we see there is the Father is sending the Holy Spirit. For the Father to send the Holy Spirit, for the Father to have sent Jesus, there's distinction in these persons. These three persons are distinct from each other. That's one of the the tenets we hold, right? And this is seen throughout Scripture. These three persons are uh, distinct. So there's one for the, the Holy Spirit. And then John 16, verse 7, uh, reminds us that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct from each other as well. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking. It is to your advantage. He's speaking to his disciples saying, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, i.e. the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, if he stays, the Holy Spirit can't come. But if he comes, or if he, if he leaves, the Holy Spirit can come. And so, there again, a distinction in their roles as distinction from each other. So then we got to go and say, just to, to reaffirm those statements we made, right? How do we know that the Spirit is in fact God? So how do we know that the Holy Spirit is God and not just an active force of God or uh as the Muslims believe that he's not Gabriel um, or things like that. So we go to Acts chapter five. This is in a, a very fascinating account early in the church where, uh, where a man named Ananias and Sapphira see the generosity of other people and try to mimic the generosity in one sense, but try to, they, they, they basically deceive uh, trying to make it look like they were doing a lot better. So reading from five verse one, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge. So they were in it together. Ananias then kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet. That would not have been a problem. He wasn't required to give the whole thing, but it was because somebody else had just sold field and given it all. He was trying to mimic having the same kind of generosity so he was, he was mimicking, he was deceiving, he was trying to act like he had sold this property and he was giving it all. And so Peter says in verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So Peter's saying it's yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So right there, verse three and verse four, he speaks about lying to the Holy Spirit and then lying to God, thereby equating the two. He's, he's lied to God. He's lied to the Holy Spirit. And so that's, one of, that's a key passage that we go to to understand the Holy Spirit is in fact God. First Corinthians 3 verse 16 is another passage that kind of we can we can make the connection. So it says, do you not know, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit, dwells in you? So he's saying you are God's temple. Well, 
in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant Scriptures, God's temple, who dwelt in the, the temple? God dwelt in the temple. And now he's saying, you are God's temple, and who dwells in you? God's spirit dwells in you. So God dwells in you, God's spirit dwells in you. So it kind of connects again the idea of who should dwell in God's temple, but God's spirit, God himself. So God again is present, or the spirit is again presented as God. And then Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. David, uh, well, actually, I'm, yeah, one of the psalmists, I'm pretty sure it's David in this context, says here, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free fr- flee from your presence? And the whole, uh, the whole psalm talking to God Right? Uh, verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So the, the, the author is clearly, let me just scroll up. Yeah, a Psalm of David. David is clearly referring to God and then says, where shall I flee from your spirit? So we learn not only is the spirit omnipresent uh, from that, but we also learn that the spirit is, is equal to God. So this is important uh, for us to know, to understand who the Holy Spirit is. How do we know that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is one, that these persons are described as God and that they actually are one God? Well, places like Genesis 1.16, so kind of backtracking through these statements. Genesis 1.16, uh, right at the very beginning, when God is creating, 1.16, I think it's 1.26 is what it's supposed to say. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That they're best probably understood as a reference to the triunity of God. Some would say that it's God and the angels, but there's no other idea in scripture that we are created in the image of angels. That's not the the idea. So let us make manager in our image is likely one of those, uh, or could very well be perhaps one of those first references to the triunity of God. Even in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, I think, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. So the Spirit of God, present at creation, God, present at creation, John 1, verse 1, reminds us, uh, or John 1 reminds us that the word, that Jesus was the agent of creation. So all three uh, together. Deuteronomy, obviously, 6, 4, and 5, we talked about the Lord our God is one. Here's some other passages that really reaffirm, again, the, the monotheistic nature of God. These are helpful if you're speaking with people that misunderstand the, tri- the Trinity uh, and say that you know, Christians do not believe in one God. They believe in three gods. You just take them to some of these passages and say, no, it's clear. So Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. It says there, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's pretty definitive. There is no other, right? There is no other uh, besides God, which is so fascinating. Even if there were other 
gods that really aren't gods. They're not even parallel to him. They're not beside him. They're not his, his equal. Satan, we talked about this, right? He's not the, the equal opposite of God. He's totally subordinate. God is like no other. There's no one beside him. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 is a New Testament reference that speaks of being, there being one God, right? 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, for there is one God, one God. And then there's one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus. So it just reminds us, that's reminding us, first of all, there's one God, but then also reminding us there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. So another passage there, Romans 3 verse 30. Paul again talking, says, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Since God is one, right? It's, it's very clear. You go through scripture, God is presented as one, but yet he's presented as and these three persons who are described as God and these three persons being distinct from each other. Finally, uh, two last quick passages. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Even before 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5, uh, actually, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, speaking about food offered to idols, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Then verse 5, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, not uh, not equal to God, yet there is, yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Interesting, parallels there, there's one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, but they're parallel, right? They're for whom are all things, or through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So we exist for God. We exist through Jesus Christ as the agent of creation. God is one though. That's very, very clear. Even, even the demons know God is one. James 2 verse 19. Speaking to people who believe God is one, but don't follow. He says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. So demons believe God exists. Demons realize there's only one true God, but demons aren't saved. So even if we could convince somebody that there's one God, obviously they are not yet saved. There's more to it than that. It's not just believing that God exists that is important. So there's equality in the Godhead, yet different roles. This is very important. And this, this maybe you could use in some sense to translate to the marriage relationship where we would say there's equality in husband and wife relationship in the sense of we are equally valuable uh, in the eyes of God, but there's different roles. In a similar way, that's true of the Godhead, uh, yet obviously beyond our comprehension totally. But the Holy Spirit, we need to remember the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, so he's present everywhere. He's omniscient, right? So he knows what God knows. He's omnipotent. He's powerful, 
Uh, and so he's, he's equally God. We don't want to get this idea that uh, it is God the Father that is, there is subordination within the roles, but there's equality in the essence, in the being. So we talk in church, you might hear this language as we're preaching through text. We talk about the son being functionally subordinate to the father, meaning he doesn't do his will. He does the will of the father, right? So functionally within the Godhead, God, the father is at the top. You could say it's not in equality, but in terms of functional roles, then God the Son is subordinate to that, and God the Holy Spirit is subordinate to that. And the reason we know that is because John 14, uh, verse 26 and 15, verse 26, which we'll get to in a moment, speak about God sending the Holy Spirit and then Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. And so for Jesus to be able to send the Holy Spirit, that's, that was, um, he's functionally subordinate to. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. There's this unique clause in the Nicene Creed uh, which I'm going to get one of you to say for me because, well, you'll see why in a second. Who wants to take a stab at saying that word for me? It's, you can't get it wrong. <laughs> well, you, maybe you can. Filioque. Okay. So that's how I think think it's supposed to be said. When I first saw it, I thought it was filioque, and I'm like, I don't know why I thought that. But then I looked up online, and I'm like, how to pronounce, right? How to pronounce filioque, or filioque. And there's literally like two dictionaries that say opposite ways. So this is very controversial in how to say it. It's actually a very controversial topic, though, because this filioque, filioque, whatever you want to call it, clause, was something that actually split the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Catholic Church regarding the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, we know, we're going to go to John 14, 26. We know that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Some of this may seem like unnecessary detail, but it actually, well, it's important, uh, I think, because it's God's word, but it's also important to know based on church history and to realize how this has divided uh, the church. Say, so John 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So here, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And so that was part of the, uh, the Nicene Creed, and things were fine. But then as they were reading scripture, uh, so he will teach you all things. So the Father will send you in my name. Then we came to chapter 15, verse 26. And this is what kind of brought the... Uh, division. So John 15, verse 26, Jesus saying, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So the Nicene Creed used to say the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the father and then filioque or filioque is a Latin phrase meaning and son. And so they added to say, the Holy Spirit proceeds, not being meaning being created, but being sent by God the Father and God the Son because of this verse, John 15, 26. And that sent quite, well, for a while, didn't cause as much controversy, but eventually in 1054, as a result of a lot of political stuff, but as a, primarily they, they point to this, the East, 
Eastern Orthodox Church split from the, the Roman Church. And so uh, why they thought it was important is because nobody was contesting really whether that was true in the time that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, that he sent from the Father, because it's like right there. But they were asking the question of whether it is true on an eternal level. So in the eternal relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is God the Father over God the Son over God the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit functionally subordinate? And I guess from what I can understand, the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't want that to be, uh, they, didn't, they didn't view things that way, whereas the Roman Church was okay with viewing it that way. And really, we can't totally know in eternity. We can see in time, in time, in this time, it very much appears like the Holy Spirit was sent by God the Father, sent by the Son, so functionally subordinate to that kind of hierarchy, if you want to call it. And so it appears, but really, it's not, it's not really a great reason to split a huge church over because it's like something that we can't be definitive about. So, um, so you're saying the Eastern Orthodox Church they didn't really accept that or believe that? Correct. So they didn't, they didn't, when that amendment of and the son got put into the Nicene Creed, that is what's pointed to as dividing the church, the, the Eastern Orthodox from the Roman, well, what became the Eastern Orthodox. There's probably a lot more to it because of the politics and stuff. And absolutely, there's a lot more to it. There's always more to it than, than what is said. But this is something that's pointed to. And if that is the true reason for the division, that's, not something that should divide us today. We want to be truthful to scripture, but, and we, we are truthful to what scripture says, but we're basically trying to take that and apply it to our understanding of the relationship of the Godhead in eternity. So before the creation of the world, before this was uh, part of the story, we're trying to determine that. And it's, it's beyond what we actually will be able to know. So causes controversy. Uh, it's interesting to know we would say God the Father, or God the Holy Spirit is functionally subordinate to God the Son, functionally subordinate to God the Father, that we would agree with the Nicene Creed as it stands right now, saying the Holy Spirit proceeded from, uh, from the Father and the Son, but we wouldn't apply that to eternity past saying we definitively know that. So anyways, hopefully that's just showing you how divisive the topic of the Holy Spirit can quickly become and sometimes over stuff that we can't even be definitive about. So Old Testament, there's many signs of the Trinity. Many times uh, if, you're dis- if you're discussing with a, a Muslim about the Trinity, they will often tell you it's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, right? And so it's made up. It's not in the Old Testament because they would maybe accept even Genesis through um, Genesis out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and kind of be, those are uh, sources of truth. But they would say, well, the Trinity's not in there. But then we point to passages like Genesis 1, right? 26, where it talks about being made in our image. But there's also a few other spots uh, that point or give hints to this idea of the Trinity. So Isaiah 6, verse 8 is a passage that we can go to. 
Isaiah the prophet saying, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, this is the Lord saying, God saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So this verse kind of again, like the Genesis 3 or Genesis 1.26 and actually in Genesis 3.22, same kind of idea. In this passage, it's saying, whom shall I send? Who, whom shall God send? But who will go for us? The Godhead, right? Who's going to go for us? That's a potential uh, allusion to the Trinity. Psalm 110, verse 1. David uh, quotes this. Or this is David speaking, and it's quoted in the, the New Testament as well. And I don't know if you have looked at this and ever, like, tried to rack your brain as to how this works, but verse one, it says, the Lord said, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord here, understand, could be said, God the Father says to God the Son, my Lord, Jesus uh, is the Lord, right? Sit at my right hand. That's absolutely where Jesus is sitting, right? Until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, kind of an allusion here to uh, these, these two phrases, the Lord says to my Lord, these two phrases to who God is, allusions to the Trinity. Again, the Trinity is kind of, it is, it, it truthfully is progressively uh, more clear through scripture, but just because it's progressively clear doesn't mean that it's not there. Then Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 So it says there, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Sorry. And the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I'm trying to understand how they had, had that one. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. So the, it's a statement said by the Lord of hosts and it's addressing and saying, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Right. Uh, so again, whether this is a, a great, a great passage to go to, it's a potential passage talking. God is talking and saying the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant. So that one might not be as good of an example. New Testament signs of the Trinity, there are many places. Again, it's not like it says here, this is the Trinity. We're going to lay it out for you. But there are absolutely many, many places where it shows up. So Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is being baptized. And when he's being baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to... So Jesus... God the Son, he's being baptized immediately when he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is where we get our imagery of the Holy Spirit being like a dove. Uh, probably shouldn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't a dove, but was like a dove, right? Descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, 
this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the person that can say this is my beloved son is God the Father with whom I am well pleased. So we have all three members of the Godhead present in this uh, in the baptism of Jesus Christ when he's when he is starting for ministry. Yep. Okay. I'm not sure what he's getting at. S A. Oh, Samuel. Samuel. Sorry, I didn't see the M. Samuel. When, the oil, when he was at the the was at uh, the head of the oil. Yeah, that was anointed. Was that meaning the the with the spirit? Yeah, the spirit. Oh, and for when he anointed Saul. When he anointed yeah, Saul. Right, right. So we're gonna get to that, but the the way the old the way the Holy Spirit works in the Old Covenant versus the way the Holy Spirit works in the New Covenant is different. So the Holy Spirit was totally active in the Old Testament. And when you talk about the kings, yes, the, the Spirit of God did in a special way manifest his presence in the life of people like Samson or the people like uh, David, right? Um, when, when he was anointed with, when every king was anointed, um, like, I'm trying to think of Saul, the passage which speaks about, um, I have to come back to that one, talking about Saul specifically, if you're talking about Samuel anointing Saul. But certainly David, like the Spirit of God, was at work in ma- many ways in the life of David, and initially seeming to in the life of Saul, but then Saul kind of ruined things, <laughs> right? So... But yes, Old Covenant versus New Covenant, there's going to be a difference. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later on. So so a couple other passages that we can uh, speak of the Trinity being very evident, all these members of the Trinity. These are familiar passages to you. Matthew 28, (coughs) verses 18. You have another question? No, no. Okay, cool. Okay, that's all right. We'll get there. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, where we have the, uh, Jesus giving the Great Commission. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of all three members of the Godhead. So we, well, that's the way we baptize, right? Uh, but right there, it puts them on an equal plane, right? If the Holy Spirit... I'm kind of getting my head of myself a little bit, but if the Holy Spirit was simply an active force, or if the Holy Spirit was Gabriel, as the Muslims uh, would teach, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus here to say baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, who's Gabriel. Like, so all of a sudden, God the Father and God the Son are equal with Gabriel. Like, in our sense, that wouldn't make sense. I guess perhaps from a, a Muslim's point of view, the son isn't God. The son is just a anointed messenger, right? So, but it wouldn't make sense to baptize them in the name of these three. These three being baptized uh, just shows us again, the equality between the, the three members of the Godhead. First Corinthians 12 verses four to five. Speaking of 
gifts of the Spirit here. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Often, excuse me, often in scripture, the Lord, small L-O-R-D, or capital L, but small L-O-R-D, often refers to Jesus, right? And so there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So we get spirit, Lord, perhaps Jesus, same God who empowers them all in everyone. Uh, And so... Again, another kind of allusion to the Trinity here. They, they come together all the time in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Another salutate, or it's a, a conclusion to a letter that Paul is writing. And this is where it shows up often. It shows up in like the, the conclusion or in the opening of some of the letters of Paul, some of the letters of Peter. Uh, it says here... 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So all three members of the the Godhead are represented. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, there's one God, but it's then that kind of idea of Lord referring to Jesus, God, Theos referring to God the Father. There's one Spirit, one Lord, one God. Uh, so again, just reaffirming that. First Peter 1, 2. Okay, there it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, we could go through, there's, there's many of them. There's one more we'll hit up, and then we will uh, we'll take a break and assign some passages. And that last one is Jude, chapter, or verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we see it throughout scripture. And as you read, you'll see it more and more. You'll see these places where there's all three members of the Trinity referenced or mentioned. And it's just, it's really uh, unique, not, not a systematic, hey, here's the Trinity explained, but definitely definitely revealing the Holy Spirit being equal to God, but yet functionally different in, its, in his role, not its role, his role. And so we want to, uh, we can worship the Holy Spirit. We can give glory to the Holy Spirit. He's, he's equally God. Okay, so we go wrong often with the Trinity, just simply in being almost like agnostic, saying it's too complex, we can't know it, and so we don't even seek to understand it which I think is a problem uh, because God has revealed something of his character. We've had these Q&As on campus at the university this past semester. And one of the questions that keep coming up is, why is the Trinity so important? Why do we need the Trinity? Why do we have to have this doctrine in our belief system? Like, why can't we? It's so difficult. It's so hard to understand. Why do we have to hold to it? And the reason we have to hold to it is because that's what scripture presents. We have, we have these difficult, challenging statements of God is one, yet over and over we see 
God the Father, he's clearly referred to, he's clearly God. God the Son, Jesus, Thomas bows down to him, says, my Lord, my God, clearly refers to him as God. In Acts 5, the Holy Spirit is clearly referred to as God. So the only way we escape it is to deny what scripture says or to just not have it, right? And we can't do that. So basically we can't deny what scripture says. So we need the Trinity because it's represented by scripture. It's also important probably on a, a theological level in terms of God having relationship and being capable of love within the Godhead, having a relationship from all time past. So he didn't need to create humans to be a God of love because he already had loving relationships within the Godhead. There's perhaps uh, reasons of that that are important, but we, ha- we have it. We need it. it. It's inescapable. So we don't want to be falling in the camp of agnostic. We don't want to be ca- in the, falling in the camp of simplifying things and trying to explain it. So we want to just speak it as it is and let the mystery remain being content with our limitations. So, okay. So uh, I'm going to give out a few passages assigned to tables and then you guys can take a break first for a few minutes and then spend 10 or so minutes reading the passage and kind of trying to, to understand what do we learn about the Holy Spirit's role as a result of this passage. So what do we learn about the Holy Spirit's role? And then if you, if you perhaps want to think about application related to that, that's fine as well. So this first table will give John 16.8. You can write that down and then after the break you can uh, speak together. John 16, 8. The second table will give Romans 8, verse 27. Romans 8, verse 27. Next table will give John 14, verses 26. So that's John 14, 26. Next table, we're going to give two verses. <laughs> John 15, 26. John 15, 26. And Romans 8, verse 16. Romans 8, verse 16. Then the next table, we will give 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2, 10. You guys, the Meninas, you guys can jump in with another table if you want. So it's not just the two of you guys. Uh, and can do, so I gave you guys 2, verse 10. Okay. The next table, you guys can jump over with um, Eric and Jeff, right? Uh, and do 1 Corinthians 2.11. And then the other table over here, we can do 1 Corinthians 12.11. 1 Corinthians 12.11. And then the very back table, you guys can do Mark 13.11. Mark 13.11. Good. So take a break. Then come back, read through the passage, try to understand what's it telling us about the role of the Holy Spirit, and then what do we learn from that slash what do we apply from that. Okay, so you're going to have a break. Okay. First group, who's going to go for the first group? John 16, verse 8, right? That's these guys. All right, so John 16, verse 8 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So obviously we've taken from that the Holy Spirit will convict us. Um, we maybe discussed that uh, without the Holy Spirit, we may not acknowledge the book, but we don't know that we have sin. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit reveals our sin mm-hmm. to us so that we can 
turn from our sin into a place of righteousness. Cool. Cool. Good. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay. By the affirmation of the rest, you're good. <laughs> so, no, absolutely. The, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Now, we can, we can know sin exists to a certain degree without the Holy Spirit. I'm sure there are many people in our world that do not have the Holy Spirit present that are aware that something is wrong and that something's broken. But the idea of like being conv- convicted of it and actually it being like, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. That's something that the Holy Spirit does, which is interesting to me, especially raising toddlers thinking, I want them to, I, I, want, to, I want to make them know what is right and what is wrong and to know that that is wrong and to be convicted of it. And Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to convict them of their sin and make it to the point where it's like, I need a savior, right? We speak the truth. We got to speak the truth, continually speak it. But you, you know this as well as I do. You can tell somebody what you're doing is stupid and wrong and stupid and wrong. And, <laughs> and it's not until God does work in their life that they actually recognize it's stupid and wrong, right? So we got to still be the ones saying it though, right? Uh, good. So second group, what passage do you guys have? You were on. Romans 8.27. Oh, sorry. Did you have something to add to that? No. Just, could just even where's the chocolate bars? <laughs> the chocolate bars are next week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm teaching reward. That's what I was, It's like the Iwana kids. You do a good job and you get a reward, right? <laughs> okay. Romans 8.27. Okay. I just got to take a little break for a second and make a comment. Uh, those that are in my life group, I don't think anybody in my life group is here tonight. Oh, actually, Melinda. Sorry, Melinda. So she'll know about this. Um, recently, we've done a memorization challenge with our, our life group. And I downloaded an app that's on my phone called, Remem- no, called Bible in Me. Bible Me, I think is what it's called. Very not horizontal <laughs> title. No, Bible Me. But it actually gives you badges if you memorize verses. So it's like the grown-up version of Awana getting little crowds. So I was like downloading or verses and starting to memorize verses, and I got like five or six badges, and then I got a new phone and lost all my badges. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. Oh. Anyways, so so it, it works though. I actually am like, I can get another badge by memorizing. There's actually a badge they give out for memorizing 21,000 verses, which is like the whole Old Testament. I'm never gonna get that, but that'd be cool. So, anyways, <laughs> 21,500 and something, I think. So, I don't know. It's called, yeah, they, they're like, you're like the novice, then the, then the master, then you're like the insane or whatever. I don't know. There's all these different levels, but. Okay, next group, you guys had Romans 8, verses 27. Yes, Romans 8, 27, and it says this. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so we as a group talked about it, and uh, we come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Mm-hmm. And also, in the beginning, it says that, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So it seems like the Holy Spirit also brings our needs to God the Father. God reads that through the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and then accomplishes his work from there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So neat that it's not just Jesus that is interceding for us before the Father, we actually have like the Holy Spirit as well interceding. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, it's interceding according to the will of God as well, right? So not just interceding for what we want all the time, 
What interceding. Good, good. Okay, next group, what verse did you have? John 14, 26. John 14, 26. I think we've already been there, right? So, okay. John 14, 26. So, go for it. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still here with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so just really, basically, um, you have the Holy Spirit described as a Helper. And um, so his role here is to teach all things and then also to bring to remembrance everything that Jesus said and taught. Good. Yep. <laughs> to remember them all so the holy spirit can actually help me with my memory <laughs> hopefully right uh he will teach you all things let's just pause on that for a moment and ask a question the holy spirit will teach you all things so do we need school dave someone asked the question do we need to read our bibles then exactly <laughs> Exactly. No. I won't say for the podcast who. It will Yes. Yes. So the question the question is, yeah. They were learning all things from Jesus at the time, right? So now it's Jesus is gone, where are they going to get their knowledge from? Good. Can you say that one more time for the back to benefit? Well, it was actually something oh. that Carmine brought up, so I don't want okay. to take credit for it. But he said, uh, or uh, basically, they were learning from Jesus at the time, but now that Jesus mm-hmm. is going to be gone, then yep. now where are they going to learn from? Right. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So learning from the Holy Spirit, right? He will teach you all things does not mean unplug your brain at church. You don't need to listen because the Holy Spirit somehow apart from God's word, apart from the proclamation of his word, things that God has commanded you to listen to, to read the Bible, to study, to be disciplined, that he's going to teach you all things. But the Holy Spirit absolutely is an active role in our understanding and teaching those things. So just, I've, I've seen that verse be abused often. That one and the spirit guides you into all truth where it's, abused often to say, well, I have the Holy Spirit, therefore every conclusion that I come to, if I'm surrendered to the Holy Spirit, which they think they're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, is true. Well, if that's true, then it will line up with Scripture, with a diligent study of Scripture, right? And there's certain things that uh, even even, um, at these university Q&As, we've been going back and forth. People have been asking, okay, on some of these controversial issues of Scripture, Two people can arrive at different conclusions and do they both can claim to be spirit led? Can the spirit lead in two directions when it comes to the role of women in the church? Ooh, that's a good question, right? And I'm like, I would not, I would, I would not feel comfortable if you are, let's say, you know, 51% certain of something in scripture, you're like, I, I, I'm kind of, I would not feel comfortable to say I am convicted by the spirit to, that the spirit has led me into this truth. I would be much more comfortable to say, as best as I can discern the spirit's leading, this is truth based on my understanding of scripture, right? But we want to be very careful to attribute because our understanding is going to be that we, every single one of us is going to arrive in heaven. And should God reveal knowledge to us that helps us to see the picture, we're all going to be like, ah, 
right? I was wrong in that. I was wrong in that because none of us has perfect theology, right? We're all, as Aaron has said to me before, we're all a little bit heretics. Uh, we just want to be making sure that we're submitting ourselves to scripture, trying to understand it as best we can and uh, going from there. So not abusing verses like this, or he will guide you into all truth to say we can unplug our brain. We can just ride along and not need what God has given us tangibly, his word, right? So good. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. It's important to kind of recognize that um, following Christ, right? We did. We have a lot of resources today. Yeah. They didn't, right? Yep. I mean, when was the Bible? The books? Seventy. The first book was seventy years, right? Yep. And then, um, even still, there were eras where people were illiterate Mm -hmm. and also uh, were relying on people to to, people from the church to teach them. So, having the influence of the Spirit or the impact of the Spirit, I think had. You know, we're talking about they will lead them in all truth, and right now we need to back it up with our reading, but I'm just saying that there's a time in many periods of history where yeah, there was right. probably a real need. Yeah, yeah, there's there's always a real need because you can... It, no, but I hear what you're saying because, okay, let's back up to Abraham. Okay, he didn't have the spirit dwelling in him, but he didn't have scriptures. Like, he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have most of the Old Testament. He didn't have... Like maybe had oral stories of what happened in the garden of Eden, right? Like, so we, we think yet Abraham was a man that scripture describes as walking with God, right? Um, of being a, a great man of faith. Um, and so for us to think about, we have the gift of God's word. The gift of God's word does not mean that we idolized text and paper and forget that it represents a real God, the living word, right? Like that has spoken. This is what he's recorded, but we're not going for, like there are, there are people that have theological degrees that can explain the Bible better than I can that don't have a relationship with the living God, right? That's what we, we, we all can understand that. So we have a relationship with God through and what he's revealed in scripture, scripture is absolutely, it's the word of God. It's living and powerful, but they are like, there's nothing, <laughs> I, I don't want to, paper and words, paper and words is, it's symbols. It's representing something, right? It wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and those Symbols have changed over time, so they're different. So when you look at the word Jesus, even J-E-S-U-S, is there anything sacred about the symbol J-E-S-U-S? It's what the symbol represents, right? The, what the, the text represents, right? And so we just, yeah, I guess what I'm saying with that is we don't want to become people that worship symbols. We want to become people that worship Jesus Christ, Symbols of the text of the words represent what Jesus has spoken. We can understand it. We can totally, uh, it's true that we can understand those things. And so we want to worship the God of the Bible, the God who spoke the living word that was recorded for us. I don't know if that makes sense and hopeful is helpful, but I've just, I've actually once heard somebody refer to like worshiping the Bible. I'm like, well, we worship the living word right? Jesus Christ. And these are his words spoken to us. But I like a paper book with 150 to 2000 pages of symbols is not what we worship. We worship what that represents, right? So the words of God. Okay. uh, Next table. You guys had two verses, right? 
Yeah, the first one is, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So it's similar to the other verse, the Holy Spirit is the helper. And then we see that he is sent from the Father, and again, the Spirit of truth. So he, he illuminates uh, truth for us. He is truth. God is truth. And he will bear witness about Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, the second scripture was, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Witness to our spirit. Um, or, excuse me, um, so the feedback that we were we prepared was that the Holy Spirit actually indwells in us, mm -hmm. as you had referenced, um, yep. and as so offers validation mm -hmm. um, to, it confirms that we are his children, yep. and uh, also allows us or provides us with discernment, um, kind mm -hmm. of validating also uh, our understanding if it's in line with his, his will, his teaching. Yes, good, yeah. So we all have a spirit that was at one time dead and is made alive when the Holy Spirit breathes life, when God breathes life into us in a sense, right? And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. So we can, like you're saying, it's validating, it's knowing, it's like an assurance that we are children of God because we know the Holy Spirit, because we have uh, the Holy Spirit. And then obviously the rest being true as well. So, so that you can be assured of your standing with God, no matter what anyone else can say because of the spirit bearing witness. Okay, the next group. You guys had Second or 1 Corinthians 2.10, correct? 2 These things God has revealed to us through the spirit, where the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. When we were looking at this, the first thing was these things. Yeah. So you have to go back to the previous verses mm -hmm. and say that those, that's the hidden and secret wisdom of God that uh, the rulers of this age wouldn't get. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, God uh, revealed them to them through the Spirit. And the Spirit searches every, everything, even the depths of God. That's good. Yeah. So the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the spirit knows, right? <laughs> knows the depths of God far beyond what we will obviously know uh, and does impart to us these, the, the wisdom of God. The spirit is actually through which God inspired his word. First Peter, we'll talk about this later. I don't think we gave this to anybody. So second Peter, rather, 121 talks about the spirit moving men to write scripture, right? So it's all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, it, is, it is through the Holy Spirit that these men were moved to write scripture, to reveal to us these things, right? Um, even this, what we're reading, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God. So that's good. And searches and like just knows, right? Uh, good. We have the next table is 1 Corinthians 2.11. So... Right after that. We have no one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. So we did something similar, went back a little further to get some context, and it's Paul's message of wisdom. So we really like that to um, some discernment and being able to know the difference between what people 
believe is knowledge in the world versus wisdom and knowing um, what are God's plans and what are his plans for you and what was his overarching plan of um, understanding why he sent his son mm -hmm. to die for us and how does that make sense to a normal person who thinks why would somebody kill their only begotten son? Mm -hmm. well, you can't truly understand that unless you have the Holy Spirit giving you the discernment to understand why that mm -hmm. was so. And um, so it was really the only way to gain wisdom is to have that relationship with God, but through the Holy Spirit giving you that kind of mm -hmm. ability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Holy Spirit can guide us into truth because the Holy Spirit has access to all truth, right? The thoughts of God, it has access. He has access to the, the very thoughts of God. If you could know all that the Spirit knows, all that God knows, that would be infinite. Obviously, your mind would explode. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So good, good sharing there. Uh, the next one we have is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I have to go back to yep. some, you know, reference to what that uh, pertains to. And basically, it's when the like the Holy Spirit has the the different gifts and it determines how to distribute the different things. Like it's, it talks of um, like speaking in tongues, distinguishing between spirits, mm -hmm. uh, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy. Yeah, good. Very good. This is really helpful for me because it means that sometimes there's limitations in my life that are God-given limitations. The Holy Spirit has a portion to each one individually as he wills. So individuals in this room, every single one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been apportioned some gift of the Holy Spirit, some gifts perhaps of the Holy Spirit, and we can debate another night next week about which gifts are active, which gifts aren't, or whatever else we want, we want to talk about. But this you cannot get away from. He apportions to each one individually as he wills. So at the end of the day, I can be, let's say the Holy Spirit has given me a gift of encouragement. I can choose to steward that gift poorly and just refuse to develop it. I can refuse to do anything with it. Uh, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, imprints on you the gift of encouragement, fully mature, and you will now fully uh, mature. There is, there is a sense in which we need to participate in that, in that, in our sanctification, right? In, in developing and growing. But I cannot become that which the Holy Spirit has not apportioned for me to become. So uh, maybe it's, I have not been given uh, the gift of, uh, evangelism like Billy Graham. 
So I'm not going to become Billy Graham apart from the spirit of God doing the work in me. That doesn't give us, this verse does not give us the excuse to say, I'm not going to try and discern what my gifts are. Uh, we want to try to discern, try to understand, right? Paul writes later in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's like, I don't want you to be, not to understand. I want you to understand about spiritual gifts. So that's why he writes, right? Um, but this is important for us to realize that at the end of the day, God apportions each one individually as he wills. And some of us will have, he will put us in positions where we have great influence and capacity and some with smaller influence and capacity. And to the degree we're being faithful to God, that says God wills. God does not intend for every believer to be Billy Graham, right? God does not intend for every believer to be in each other's uh, roles. He apportions to each one individually as wills. he wills, and we want to max out the gift that he's given us. So thank you. That was great. Uh, and then we have the final one right at the back, Mark 13, 11. Is that right? good that's good so this verse is like anytime there's a student that's unprepared for teaching sunday school this is the verse they go to right <laughs> and in that situation the holy spirit will give me words okay whew, i got this right uh that's not the situation he's talking about right when they deliver you to trial they bring you to trial and deliver you over when you're in a situation where you've been plopped in that situation kind of like you mentioned you didn't have a chance to prepare now you don't have to be anxious and say like, oh, I didn't have a chance to prepare, right? Just submit to the Holy Spirit and speak. And probably if you've been walking with the Lord for a while and have been in situations like this before, you might have encountered situations where you did submit to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit used you and it wasn't his voice talking, but it was his voice talking through you, right? Where you said some things and you probably afterwards thought, man, I sounded good, yeah. right? <laughs> like, that, wow, somebody, somebody quote that, right? And it's often... <laughs> Sadly, it's not in the situation where it's usually quoted, right? And you're like, that's that, yeah, like tweet, right? <laughs> Think of maybe a situation where you are, uh, you're in your front yard and your neighbor sporadically comes over and starts talking and you have this situation and you're like, I, I've, I, I was not prepared for this, right? And great opportunity, right? Even then, in that moment, you can pray, Lord, like, give me the words and speak. And you'll probably bumble and fumble around you may feel like that, but God can often use that to, to work uh, in and through you, right? So 
we want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. But this kind of verse does not give us the excuse to say, I don't need to study. I'm just going to go and wing it, right? We want to be people that are, uh, are disciplining ourselves. Same side of the scenario, or the flip side of the coin, we don't, don't want to become people, and you already know this, that think we can manipulate the Holy Spirit and say, if I spend all the hours in the study and I nail this like lesson or this message and I've got it perfect and like, oh, God is going to use this on Sunday or God is going to use that. And it's all in, yeah, right. All of a sudden we're trying to change hearts. We're trying to change lives. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. We need to still be disciplined and study in those moments when you are in that anxious hour, if you have done walking with the Lord, studying his word, you'll be amazed at what God brings out in those moments when you weren't prepared or counting on it. If you haven't been walking with the Lord and haven't spent time, he can still use you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that as the Holy Spirit uses time you've spent in the word this week, that's what's going to come out when you are in that moment that you didn't prepare for, where you're all of a sudden counseling your neighbor who's going through a tragedy or whatever the case may be, right? So it just reminds us, we don't need to be anxious in the moment, but let's not be foolish and say, God's got it any moment that's going to arrive. Let's, let's, that's true, but let's faithfully be in his word diligently. So, so hopefully this gives you a little bit of uh, stuff to think about. Next week, we're going to pick up a little bit more on roles. We're going to pick up a little bit more on uh, some of the names for the Holy Spirit, but more we're going to talk about the operation. This is where we're going to get into the old covenant versus the new covenant, talking about uh, the differences there. Um, I already mentioned the different religions' views a little bit on the Holy Spirit, so it's just kind of helpful to know if you're talking with a Muslim and you talk to them about the Holy Spirit, they don't view the Trinity the way we do. They think we, the Muslims I've talked to, think that we think the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and Mary. Which I'm like, I, that's, that's not even what Christians teach. That, now, that might not be Muslims as a whole. I'm not uh, just the ones that I've spoken with, right? Uh, some of them believe, and this is from Answering Islam or uh, about Islam.com, that believe that uh, the Holy Spirit is actually the angel Gabriel. So I don't think that squares with, obviously, how we should understand things at all. Uh, but just so you understand, if you're talking, you want to clarify terms before you just assume, right? Uh, Jews also don't believe in the Holy Spirit as being God. Uh, one, one reference I heard is that they view it as the inspiration of God, kind of like the wisdom of God, um, perhaps personified in uh, Proverbs, but they, that's kind of perhaps their view. And then obviously Jehovah's Witnesses believe uh, the Holy Spirit is not God, but is the active force of God. So more like Star Wars-esque or something, right? So, uh, but more the active force, which, which also does not make sense if you think of the Holy Spirit as the power of God. There's many scriptures, which we'll, we'll look at later, but it would essentially, when these, you're reading these passages, it would be like Jesus in power in the Holy Spirit uh, would be like Jesus in power in the power. So it's Jesus... The Holy Spirit being as power just is not a sufficient 
definition of the Holy Spirit. So anyways, so that's where we're going to end for tonight. Next week, we'll uh, pick up some of those terms, some of the roles. Speaking of the operation application, we'll do a little quiz based on some of these things. And uh, hopefully it won't be too intense. So you are dismissed. (laughs)